Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Criminology Academy podcast, where we're criminally academic. My name is Jose Sanchez. And I'm Jen Tosleib. Today, we have Professor Cassia Spahn on the podcast to talk with us about sexual assault, specifically on sexual assault cases. Cassia Spahn is Regents Director in the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Arizona State University. One of her main areas of research focuses on examining the response of the criminal justice system to the crime of sexual assault. She has examined prosecutors' decisions to charge or not in these cases, and most recently completed a comprehensive study of police and prosecutorial decision-making in sexual assault cases in Los Angeles. She also is a member of the Department of Defense Advisory Committee on the Investigation, Prosecution, and Defense of Sexual Assault in the Armed Forces. Thank you so much for joining us, Cassia. We're excited to have you. Of course, my pleasure. Okay, so a brief overview of what this episode is going to look like. So like it is usual for us here, we're going to begin with some broader questions surrounding sexual assault and some of the issues surrounding um, sexual assault. Then we're going to get into a paper that was authored by our guest, um, Cassia. And then finally, we're going to discuss um, some of the work that's done um, once we get into the court system with sexual assault and maybe some things that we can do uh, to help or aid um, with some of the myths and, and beliefs that surround sexual assault. Um, with that being said, Jen, why don't you go ahead and get us started? All right, thanks, Jose. Um, so first off, we'd like to start off by acknowledging that sexual assault is underreported to the police. That is, people choose not to report their victimization to the police. Um, Cassia, can you tell us about what percentage of sexual assaults go unreported? And if possible, can that be broken down by women and men? So if we look at data from the National Crime Victimization Survey, which is a national, nationally representative survey in which ind individuals indicate whether they've been victimized by personal or household crime, and if so, whether they reported the crime to the police, we see that in 2018, only 25% of all rapes and attempted rapes were reported to the police. This is actually a decline from 2017 when the figure was closer to 40%. But regardless of whether the real rate of, unreport, of reported uh, rapes is 25% or 40%, uh, the reporting rate, rate for rape is substantially lower than it is for other violent crimes. For example, the rate in uh, 2018 was 63% for robbery and 60% for aggravated assault. Um, there's very little data on reporting by male victims um, of, sexual, uh, of sexual violence, but there is some data on reporting um, sexual assaults that occur among members of the military. And this data shows us that 43% um, of the female victims, but only 10% of the male victims reported the crime. And so, although you can't necessarily um, extrapolate from data on the military to data on uh, non-military um, installations or, or just regular civilians, um, I think we can 
pretty confidently say that that men are less likely than women to report for various reasons. Yeah, those numbers are so low. And the drop between 2017 and 2018 is interesting. Is there any reason that's for that drop? Well, it might be due in part to the fact that the estimated number of victims of rape and sexual assault um, was about 350,000 in 2018 compared to only 209,000 in 2017. And so we could have had more victims um, being willing to acknowledge to the interviewers that they had been victimized um, but at the same time, um, just n- not still not willing to report that crime to the police. Yeah. And so what are some of the reasons that we know of for why people are so reluctant to report to the police? Well, again, if we look at the National Crime Victimization Survey, they do ask that question. And um, other research has also asked survivors, you know, why don't you report, why did you not report the crime to the police? And survivors cite several reasons. Um, some fear retaliation by the perpetrator or his family or friends. Um, others believe that it's a private matter and perhaps it's something that they're embarrassed or ashamed about. Um, There's a belief that the police can't do anything about it, Um, that even if they report the crime and are willing to cooperate in the investigation and prosecution of the suspect, that um, the odds of seeing the perpetrator brought to justice are relatively low. So it's sort of like, what's the point? Um, Another reason um, that victims sometimes uh, cite is that they didn't want to get the perpetrator in trouble, that they didn't believe that the incident was serious enough to justify labeling the perpetrator as a sex offender and all that that entails, um, and possibly taking away his freedom. Um, We also know that people who are assaulted by strangers are much more likely to report the crime to the police than those who are reported by, or who are um, assaulted by, Uh, friends, acquaintances, and intimate partners. And these are actually the most common types of sexual assaults, that is non-stranger sexual assaults. And victims in these types of cases um, are more likely to blame themselves for what happened, um, to fear retaliation, and to believe that successful prosecution is unlikely. So, there, there really are many reasons that victims give for not going to the police. Um, okay. And I'm sure that there are plenty more um, on top of everything that you mentioned as well. But so that being said, that kind of gets at why people may not report to the police. So let's talk about some of the issues that may come up when people do report their victimization to the police. Um, We know based off of the paper we're going to discuss in a couple of minutes that there are a variety of gatekeeping decisions that the police must make when receiving a report of rape. Um, Can you tell our listeners what gatekeeping decisions are, um, what some of them may look like, and then why they may result in a police report being um, 
being filed or a case not being referred to the prosecutor? Sure. So we often think of prosecutors as the gatekeepers of the criminal justice system yeah. in the sense that a case cannot proceed unless the prosecutor decides to file charges. But I would argue that in sexual assault cases, the police are the real gatekeepers. And this is because so few cases result in an arrest. For example, Catherine Tellis and I examined police and prosecutorial decision-making in Los Angeles. And one of the questions we asked was, how much attrition is there in sexual assault cases? And more importantly, what's the locus of that attrition? Where does it, where does it occur? And what we found was that from 2005 to 2009, there were more than 5,000 cases of rape and attempted rape reported to the Los Angeles Police Department. Of these cases, only 594, fewer than 12% resulted in the arrest of an adult suspect. And then 486 of these cases uh, resulted in the filing of charges by the prosecutor and 390 resulted in the conviction of the defendant. So the, the locus of case attrition is clearly the decision to arrest. Yeah. There were 5,031 cases reported and only 594 even resulted in an arrest. And obviously if the case doesn't result in arrest in an arrest, it's not going to proceed into the criminal justice system. And we found a very similar pattern for the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. So that's an important um, gatekeeping function that the police perform. In fact, it's probably the most important uh, function. Another important decision that the police um, make is how thoroughly to investigate the crime whether to interview potential witnesses, whether to visit the crime scene and collect evidence, um, whether to obtain videotapes that might confirm the victim's allegations, um, whether to obtain uh, text messages from the victim's phone or to conduct pretext phone calls with the suspect and so on. And if the police believe that the report is false or baseless, they also can unfound the report. When this happens, the report is not counted as one of the crimes that the law enforcement agency has to report uh, through the uniform crime reports. In, in essence, the incident disappears from the crime statistics. And we know that in sexual assault cases, many police departments abused this process. For example, in 2010, the Baltimore Sun reported that the Baltimore Police Department led the country in the number of cases that were sexual assault cases that were unfounded, uh, that were deemed to be false or baseless and, and thus were unfounded. Um, and according to the to the report from 2004 to 2009, about a third of the rapes reported to the Baltimore Police Department were unfounded, a rate that was three times the national average. Um, and so, I mean, it's, it's almost mind boggling to think that a third of the cases reported to the police would be false or baseless and therefore should be unfounded. 
And one other thing we discovered um, in Los Angeles that um, really structured how we did the rest of our research is that the police there often present the case to the prosecutor for what we called a pre-arrest charge evaluation um, before they made an arrest. Um, in other words, they had probable cause to make an arrest, but the case was problematic in some way. Perhaps the victim's allegations were inconsistent. Um, perhaps the victim and the suspect were in an intimate relationship and there was evidence of a motive to lie or the victim was under the influence of alcohol or drugs and therefore could not clearly articulate what happened. So in these kinds of situations, they would present the case to the district attorney and ask whether the case would be filed if they made an arrest. If the DA said no, the police would not make an arrest. So clearly there's a whole series of decisions that the police make in terms of this gatekeeping function. They decide whether to arrest, they decide how much, how much time and resources to devote to the investigation, whether to unfound the case. Um, and then in Los Angeles and some other jurisdictions, whether to um, use this pre-arrest charge evaluation um, rather than make the arrest and present the case to the district attorney. So yeah. you um, touched on um, these cases, some of these cases being unfounded because maybe they were found to be false. And so we wanted to talk to you about um, false accusations. And one of the issues that comes up when we hear about um, a sexual assault being reported, and this is primarily um, from what we see with like high profile athletes or um, actors or celebrities, um, like uh, the big one is with um, Deshaun Watson right now, the quarterback for the Cleveland Browns. Uh, and one of the things that we tend to see, especially like on social media is this automatic assumption that people make that because somehow this person has a lot of money, these allegations must be false for some type of financial gain. Um, but I've seen or I've heard that false accusations are pretty rare. And can you tell us more about whether this is accurate and how rare exactly are false accusations? So allegations that women are lying about being sexually assaulted are not new. Um, but it is one of the common rape myths that we encounter, um, whether we're looking at um, police or prosecutor decision-making or public attitudes towards sexual assault, that women frequently lie about being sexually assaulted. We can go back to the 18th century and an English judge, Sir Matthew Hale, um, opined that uh, rape is an accusation easily to be made and hard to be proved and harder to be defended by the party accused, though never so innocent. But estimates of the number of false reports um, vary widely. Um, one researcher 
reported that about half of the sexual assaults reported to a Midwestern police department were false. And another reported that the rate of false reporting was only 1.5%. But a comprehensive review of research published in the United States, the United Kingdom, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand noted that estimates varied from this low of 1.5% to a high of 90%. Um, and these variations reflect differences in the way false reports are defined and measured, as well as differences in the reliability and validity of the research designs used to evaluate false reports. And according to um, one uh, group of experts, if you look at only the more methodologically rigorous research, estimates for the percentage of false reports begin to converge around two to 8%. And my own research in Los Angeles concluded that the rate of false reports there was just under 5%. So the rape myth that women frequently lie about being sexually assaulted, notwithstanding the rate of false reports is actually very low. Okay, I mean, it's crazy to think that the range could be so, so one big. To yeah, 1% to 90%, yeah. Yeah, um, something else that has come up somewhat recently um, with, you know, with the Me Too movement is people that seem to be against the Me Too movement um, have claimed that because of it, we are now seeing an increase of false accusations. Mm -hmm. Is there anything at all to that validates or gives some merit to that claim? Well, I've heard about this as well. Um, the idea that the at Me Too movement may have led to an increase in false accusations and coupled with the quote, start by believing campaign in which the assumption that is that all women who make allegations of sexual violence or sexual harassment should be believed, there may have been an increase in false allegations. But I say may have be been, because there are no national data on false reports and certainly no data on trends over time. And so I, I don't know that we can reach any definitive conclusions about this. Um, we know that victims sometimes recant their allegations, um, not because the crime did not occur, but because they're afraid of retaliation they may have reconciled with the alleged perpetrator or for some other reason. And there's a recent book by Alan Dershowitz called Guilt by Accusation, uh, The Challenge of Proving Innocence in the Age of At Me Too. But that's one case, one potential case of a false allegation. And it does not speak at all to uh, national numbers or to trends over time. Um, so I would hate to, to reach any um, sort of definitive conclusion um, about this. Okay. Um, so kind of moving away from today and thinking about the past and what has occurred surrounding reforms about rape, we know that a variety of reforms occurred in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, can you 
key us into what the driving force behind these reforms was? And can you elaborate on just one or two of the more significant sure. reforms that occurred? So the, the rape reform movement emerged in the mid-1970s in response to the publication of several very influential books about uh, rape. Uh, for example, in 1975, Susan Brown Miller wrote a detailed and very sobering account of rape, um, its origins, the myths surrounding it, and the ways in which the laws and practices um, made it likely that only a few of those who committed this crime of violence would be held accountable, and that those who were held accountable would not be representative of the many, many people who engaged in this type of criminal behavior. Uh, 12 years later, Susan Estrich, who was a law professor and the author of Real Rape, reached a similar conclusion. Um, like Brown Miller and others, um, she argued that all rapes are not treated equally and that the response of the criminal justice system is predicated on stereotypes and myths about rape and rape victims and that the most serious dispositions are what are reserved for what she called real rapes involving genuine victims. Um, these feminist critics, and there were many others as well, argued that under traditional rape law, it was the victim who was often placed on trial. So criticisms such as these um, led to the, the rape reform movement that um, as I said, emerged in the 1970s and quickly became a key item on the feminist agenda. Uh, women's groups led by the National Organization of Women's Task Force on Rape lobbied state legislatures to revise antiquated rape laws that too often placed the blame for the crime on the victim. And they were joined in their efforts by crime control advocates, notably police and prosecutors, who were alarmed by dramatic increases in reports of rape during the 1960s and early 1970s, and who urged rape reform as a method of encouraging more victims to report the crime and to cooperate with law enforcement officials. And together, these groups formed a powerful, although perhaps ill-matched, uh, coalition for change. And by the mid-1980s, nearly all states had enacted some type of rape reform legislation. And not all states enacted um, comprehensive legislation. The state of Michigan did. Um, but many states enacted different uh, reforms at different times. Um, I would say the most common changes adopted during the reform movement were um, redefining rape and replacing it with a series of graded offenses that were defined by the seriousness of the crime and the um, um, presence or absence of aggravating circumstances. And these were gender neutral uh, statutes. So instead of rape, which is carnal knowledge of a woman by force and against her will, um, we had sexual assault or sexual abuse um, crimes that talked about individuals and did not differentiate by gender. 
Um, many states also eliminated the requirement that the victim must physically resist her attacker in order to get a conviction um, and that the victim's testimony must be corroborated in some way. Rape was the only crime for which uh, there was a corroboration requirement. Um, other states eliminated the marital exemption for rape, um, which was in, enshrined in the traditional carnal knowledge definition of rape, you know, carnal knowledge of a woman, not one's wife. Uh, and then the final prong of the reform movement was the passage of rape shield laws that prevented the defense attorney from introducing evidence about the victim's past sexual behavior um, during, during a trial for sexual assault. And, and these were significant reforms, um, at least on paper, um, yeah. but research has shown that their impact was primarily symbolic as opposed to instrumental. Uh, they did not have the dramatic um, instrumental effects that reformers had hoped they would. And there's, there's reasons for that. As one, uh, as one attorney uh, told me during an interview, well, you can change the law, but you can't ne necessarily change people's attitudes um, yeah. about sexual assault and sexual assault victims. Yeah, this I was like reviewing different crime definitions for a class that I'm teaching over the summer and just how the definition of rape and sexual assault has changed over time. It has mm -hmm. to be like one of the most, you know, continuously changing definitions and also one of the hardest to study and get people to interpret things the same way. It just has to be really challenging. Exactly. Yeah. And are we still sort of riding this way from the 70s and 80s? Or have we seen some significant reform over the last 10, 15 years or so? You know, there was kind of a lull um, after the um, passage of all of these reforms in the late mm -hmm. 1970s and through the 1980s. But recently, we've seen a number of states take some what I would call baby steps toward um, doing some things designed to um, make it easier to, to prosecute these kinds of cases. So some states have um, lengthened the statute of limitations for sexual assault and have raised the age of consent in sexual assault cases. You know, for example, uh, Minnesota recently raised the age of consent from, if you can believe it, 13 to 14. <laughs> Um, 14 seems awfully young as well. Um, some states, um, and again, um, this is a reform that um, happened in Minnesota as well, um, closed a loophole in statutes regarding sexual assault of an intoxicated person. So under the old laws, you could prosecute someone for sexually assaulting an intoxicated person only if you could prove that the victim was intoxicated as a result of drugs or alcohol that were administered to the victim without her consent. Um, and so this precluded the prosecution of uh, individuals who sexually assaulted someone who willingly um, ingested 
alcohol or illegal drugs. Um, and so the law was changed and, and it is now illegal to have sex with someone who is so intoxicated that they can't consent. And many other states have um, now had uh, changed the law. So they have a um, sexual assault of an intoxicated person as well. Mm -hmm. So those are just some of the things that, that I've seen um, come, come down the, the uh, pike recently. And hopefully not just symbolic, but I guess time will tell. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I think we can start moving into the paper that we're going to discuss today. Um, like we mentioned up top, it was authored by our guest, Cassia Spahn, and her colleague, Catherine Tellis. It's titled Sexual Assault Case Outcomes, Disentangling the Overlapping Decisions of Police and Prosecutors. It was published in Justice Quarterly in 2019, and the study argues that police and prosecutorial decisions should not be made in isolation as they are intertwined. The main purpose of the paper was to disentangle this relationship. The study uses data on sex crimes that were reported to the Los Angeles Police Department and the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. Uh, the study focused on cases involving female victims over the age of 12 in 2008, and only cases involving charges of rape or attempted rape were included. A total of 543 cases were obtained from the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, and 401 were used from the LAPD, the Los Angeles Police Department, which was then narrowed down to 650 total cases that met the chart criteria. I'd also like to point out that 401 were used from the LAPD, but the number you received was much, much higher, so much so that you had to actually narrow it down a little bit, correct? Mm -hmm, that's correct. And we only looked at cases with, in which there was an identified suspect, mm -hmm. since we're looking at arrest and you can't make an arrest if you don't have a suspect. Correct, yes. Um, okay, so with that being said, our first question is, what was the motivation behind writing this paper? Well, I think the motivation for writing this paper stemmed from our discovery during interviews with detectives in Los Angeles, that there was actually overlap between decisions made by the police and prosecutor in sexual assault cases. What was happening in this jurisdiction was, as I mentioned a moment ago, that the police would often ask the district attorney for what was essentially a charging decision before they made an arrest. In other words, if the detective investigating the case had probable cause to make an arrest, but the case was problematic or weak in some way, um, the detective would present the case, the case file to the district attorney and ask whether it was likely that they would file charges and prosecute the suspect. If the DA said no, as was usually the case, the detective would not make an arrest, but would close the case and clear it by exceptional means. These so-called problematic cases then never got to the prosecutor's office for a formal charging decision. We also found that there were some cases, particularly those reported to the LAPD, in which the police made an arrest, 
but then change the case clearance type from cleared by arrest to cleared by exceptional means if the prosecutor refused to file charges. Um, we couldn't really understand why they were doing that since it reduced their arrest rate um, for um, reporting purposes. Um, so we wanted to dig into this uh, to see if we could identify what motivated detectives to present cases to the DA uh, when they had probable cause to make an arrest. Um, rather than going ahead and making the arrest and then presenting the case to the prosecutor for a formal charging decision. Um, and so I think this, this illustrates the importance of using a mixed methods approach in this kind of research. Because if we hadn't conducted more than 100 interviews with detectives, we wouldn't have known that this was occurring. It wasn't obvious from the data um, and so um, this, this seemed like something that um, hadn't been identified in previous research and, and it was something that we thought could potentially be important. Yeah, so you just discussed kind of how these overlap and it sounds like in the past they've very much been studied separately and may, it may be obvious, but can you just elaborate a little bit on what the problems would be studying these separately, given the overlap that you're seeing? Sure. Well, I think it could be problematic if, as was the case in Los Angeles, police asked the prosecutor for an informal pre-arrest charge evaluation before making an arrest. Now, typically policing researchers operationalize the decision to arrest based on whether the case was cleared by arrest. That's the designation that you find in, in police records, in, uh, um, in police records. And prosecutors and, and researchers examining prosecutors charging decisions um, examine on data on cases that resulted in an arrest and were then presented to the prosecutor for a charging decision. This is what I did in my own research um, prior to this study in Los Angeles. I did some work on prosecutors charging decisions in uh, Miami, Kansas City, and Philadelphia. And that's how we operationalized the charging decision. Yeah. There was an arrest and the case was presented to the prosecutor for a charging decision. But, we, but what we found in LA was that a substantial proportion of the cases in which a suspect were, was arrested were not cleared by arrest and that a significant number of cases were evaluated and rejected by the prosecutor prior to the arrest of the suspect. So defining the decision to arrest as cases that were formally cleared by arrest and operationalizing the charging decision as cases that were evaluated following the arrest of a suspect is misleading. Um, as doing so undercounts both um, types of cases. At least in Los Angeles, the decision to arrest a suspect was not solely in the hands of the police. In difficult or problematic cases, prosecutors played a key role in determining whether the suspect would be arrested or not. 
And so in that sense, you know, we argued that these decisions overlap. And what we were trying to do is, can we disentangle those decisions and see whether different factors affect different kinds of outcomes, depending on how you operationalize the dependent variable. Yeah, it's so interesting. Do you know if that kind of dual decision-making happens elsewhere or? So I've asked um, that question a lot of people who do research in this area and also of um, people uh, of of law enforcement officials in various um, jurisdictions. And it appears that it's more common in Los Angeles than it is in other jurisdictions. And it's also important to point out that this only occurred in sexual assault cases. This pre-arrest charge evaluation was not something they did in other kinds of cases. Now, they told us they might do it in a, in a domestic violence case, but it was really something that, that was um, confined to sexual assault cases. Oh. oh, that is interesting. Yeah. Okay. So in this paper, you put forward two theoretical perspectives uh, regarding police and prosecution decision making. The first um, perspective was Black's sociological theory of law. And the second is the focal concerns perspective, which was developed to explain judges' sentencing decisions. Um, can you? briefly tell us what these are exactly and how they apply to um, decision-making in sexual assault cases? Yeah, so let me focus on the focal concerns perspective, which as you said, was developed um, to explain judges' sentencing decisions. And according to this perspective, judges' um, decisions regarding the appropriate sentence are based on what Ulmer uh, Stephensmeyer, Ulmer, and Kramer referred to as three focal concerns. Um, the blameworthiness or culpability of the offender, their desire to protect the community from dangerous or threatening offenders, and then what they called the um, practical considerations or social costs of punishment decisions, particularly the decision to incarcerate. So we argue in this paper, and I argued in a previous paper that looked um, more closely at unfounding, that this perspective is also relevant to police and prosecutorial decision-making. Um, I think that the focal concerns that guide these decisions are similar, but not identical to the focal concerns that judges have um, when determining the appropriate sentence. Um, like judges, police and prosecutors consider the seriousness of the crime, the degree of injury to the victim, the blameworthiness of the offender, um, the dangerousness of the suspect. But I think their concerns about the practical consequences or social costs of their decisions focus more on the odds of conviction than the costs of incarceration. Um, police have a downstream orientation to prosecutors and thus are reluctant to make arrests in cases that are not likely to be 
successfully prosecuted. We often don't think about the police as motivated by concerns about conviction, but at least in sexual assault cases, I think they are. I think they're reluctant to send a case forward to the prosecutor if they um, are, have, have serious concerns about the likelihood of conviction. Prosecutors similarly have a downstream orientation to judges and juries. They're concerned about um, if I file charges, will the judge or the jury um, be willing to, to convict? And so they're similarly reluctant to file charges unless they believe that the case can be successfully prosecuted. Okay. All right, so I think we've laid a really good foundation for the paper. So we'd like to start getting into the results um, or your findings with this paper. Um, again, looking at decision-making by the police in Los Angeles and prosecutors. Um, can you tell us about what you found descriptively re regarding case outcomes of sexual assault cases? Sure. Um, so we examined for this paper, we only examined the 491 reports of rape and attempted rape in which there was an identified suspect. Since as I said before, arrest is only possible if you have an identified suspect. And among these cases, we found that about 47% resulted in the arrest of a suspect. Thus, more than half of the cases in which the police were able to conclusively identify a suspect did not result in the arrest of a suspect. And I think that's pretty shocking. Yeah. Uh, we also found that about a fourth of the cases that resulted in an arrest were not actually cleared by arrest. And this occurred when the DA refused to file charges and the police then changed the case clearance type from cleared by arrest to cleared by exceptional means. And there were 357 cases in which the prosecutor was asked to make a charging decision. 107, 147 of these were cases that were presented to the prosecutor before the police had made an arrest. Um, in these cases in which the police did have probable cause to make an arrest, the prosecutor filed charges in only nine cases. So in other words, 94% of the cases that were evaluated by the DA before the police made an arrest were rejected for prosecution and the police did not make an arrest. And so this is how these decisions are overlapping and why it's important that they not be studied completely separately. Um, by contrast, there were uh, 210 cases presented to the DA after the suspect was arrested. And about half of these cases resulted in the filing of charges. And this is consistent with other research that generally shows that the rejection rate in sexual assault cases about, is about 50%. Again, this suggests that detectives present weak or problematic cases to the prosecutor prior to making an arrest. And this was confirmed by our interviews in which we had detectives tell us that if the case is weak or problematic in some way, they take it to the district attorney to quote, get a reject and they then close the case. 
Those numbers are pretty shocking. Absolutely. It really is. Um, yeah. you, know, that, you know, that only nine out of 147 yeah. cases that the prosecutor evaluated prior to the police making an arrest were cases where they filed charges. Yeah. All right. So from here, getting these descriptives, you next looked at the predictors of police decision making, which were based in the sociological theory of crime and the focal concerns perspectives. Um, can you tell us about the key elements that went into police decision making? Sure. This is complicated by the fact that we operationalize police decision making in three different ways. Yeah. But a key takeaway is that the decision to arrest the suspect was arrest uh, was affected um, by all but one of our indicators of case seriousness. Uh, suspect physically assaulted the victim, the suspect used a weapon, and the victim suffered some sort of collateral injury. These kinds of cases were more likely to result in an arrest. We also found that all four measures of the strength of evidence in the case affected the likelihood of arrest. And that was whether the victim reported the crime within an hour, the number of witnesses, whether the victim was willing to cooperate and the existence of physical evidence. One of the criticisms of the research that's been done to date on prosecutorial decision-making in general and on police and prosecutorial decision-making in sexual assault cases is that many of these studies did not have good um, indicators of the strength of evidence in the case, um, which is obviously an important factor. And so many of these earlier studies I think were, um, were misspecified because if you rely on data from case management systems, you're not going to get the kind of detailed data you need to, um, to conduct a valid and reliable analysis of these decisions. Um, there's no indicator in case management systems, which are used to track and monitor the outcomes of cases, there's no indicators of uh, was there any physical evidence? Was the victim engaged in a kind of risky behavior? Were there questions about her credibility? None of that is in the um, case management systems. And so I, th I think this is one of the obstacles to research in this area is that you can't rely on electronic data management systems. Mm -hmm. You actually have to get the case files from the police. And that's what we did in LA. We, um, they gave us redacted case files. Some of these case files were 80 or 90 pages long. Um, and we used that the, those case files to code more than 200 variables on each case. You don't get that from an electronic um, data management system. Yeah. Um, so that was, I, I think, um, you know, sort of the, a key takeaway is that the decision to arrest was determined primarily by what people would think of as legally relevant factors and indicators of the strength of evidence in the case. But when we looked at whether the detective investigating the crime presented the case to the DA for a pre-arrest charge evaluation, we found that whether the victim engaged in any type of risky behavior, 
such as walking alone late at night, hitchhiking, uh, drinking or using drugs, um, affected this outcome. In fact, cases in which the victim engaged in any kind of risky behavior at the time of the incident were two times more likely to be presented to the DA prior to the arrest of the suspect. So again, this lends credence to this notion that the detectives know when they have a problematic case. And if they wanna close that case, they can take it to the DA. The DA says, no, we won't be filing charges. And then they can uh, clear it by exceptional means. And the final uh, result section that you have in your paper is about um, the prosecutor's decision or charging decisions. Um, can you tell us what you found concerning predictors of charging decisions? You know, again, this is complicated by the fact that we measured charging in two different ways. We measured it as the traditional indicator of charging that is a formal charging decision after arrest. And then we also um, operationalized the decision as um, charging before or after the suspect was arrested, which we argue is the more valid indicator of charging, at least in this particular ju jurisdiction. Um, what we found was that the decision to charge after the arrest of the suspect um, was only affected by the victim's age, charging was more likely in, with younger victims, whether the victim had a motive to lie and whether the victim was willing to cooperate. But when we looked at this more inclusive definition of charging, which included charging decisions that were made before the suspect was arrested, we found that although all of these, each of these three indicators that I just mentioned also affected this, this outcome or an outcome, this outcome uh, operationalized this way, we also found that um, it was affected by the victim's risky behavior, whether the suspect uh, used a weapon and whether the, the crime was reported within an hour. Okay. Um, so again, the way that you measure, the way you define and measure things, um, it matters uh, to the conclusions that you're going to, um, that you're going to reach about the uh, predictors of these outcomes. Yeah, yeah I feel like I feel like that's something we continuously come back to in this podcast of how definitions and clarity is so important when doing the kind Absolutely. of research we do. Yeah. All right. So given the set of findings, some of which are pretty surprising based on prior research and also pretty alarming, what kind of implications can we take from the study for research and then for policy and practice? Well, I think in terms of research, um, I think you have to understand the decision-making process. And only um, as a result of our detailed interviews, both, both with the um, heads of these uh, uh, units and with detectives and assistant district attorneys, you know, only through these interviews did we find out about this pre-arrest charging evaluation. Um, and I think, as you just said, uh, Jess, it's important to um, carefully and appropriately define and measure the deep, in, in particular, you know, the outcomes that you're interested in. Um, in terms of 
policy implications, um, we found that police in Los Angeles overuse, in fact, misuse the exceptional clearance. Um, the Uniform Crime Reporting Handbook is very clear on when cases can be cleared by exceptional means. And our interviews reveal that detectives did not understand these rules. They did not understand them. They misused the exceptional uh, clearance in many, many cases. Um, we also argue that pre-arrest charge evaluation has important policy implications. Um, we contend in our paper that whether a suspect is arrested should not be contingent upon whether the prosecuting attorney believes that the evidence meets their standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt and that the case would therefore likely result in a jury conviction. This subjects the decision to arrest to a higher standard of proof than is required under the law and effectively gives the prosecutor control over the decision to arrest in these cases. Because if the prosecutor says, no, that's a case that we're not likely to file, then the police don't make the arrest in most cases. Right. It also means that individuals who have committed a very serious crime are not held accountable and denies victims denies justice, I'm sorry, denies justice to victims who made a very difficult decision to report uh, the crime and to cooperate with police as the case moves through the system. We do not suggest that there should be anything like a mandatory arrest policy in sexual assault cases, but we do believe that the police should make an arrest when there is probable cause to do so and should not allow the prosecutor to veto their decision to make an arrest. Yeah, seems like an overlap between law enforcement and courts that we shouldn't have, so. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I suspect though, um, I don't know of any other research like this in any other, involving any other type of crime, but I suspect you would not find this in most other types of serious crimes, this kind of yeah. overlap. Right. Yeah, it definitely would be interesting to see. Uh, but yeah, I, my, my gut feeling would be that you're correct. Um, but okay, so we want to spend the last few minutes that we have, uh, about 10 or so, uh, talking about, so we've talked about um, police and prosecutors, uh, but especially given some of the recent events, like the one that has seemingly taken the world by storm is the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial. Uh, what do we know about um, judges and jury decision-making when it comes to sexual assault cases? So there's really very little research on um, decisions beyond police and prosecutorial decisions in sexual assault cases. Um, probably the most, um, the, the one that comes to mind, it's, it's actually from the 1960s. Um, it's a book by Calvin and Zeisel in which um, they studied the outcomes, jury decision-making in sexual assault cases. And um, they argued in that book that, um, 
in cases in which the the um, the evidence is weak or you know the the juries have some concerns about problematic aspects of the case that um, they feel liberated to ignore the law and base decisions on their own beliefs, feelings, mm -hmm. um, you know, perceptions. So that's where the, the so-called liberation hypothesis actually came from, is that mm -hmm. 1966 book by Calvin and Zeisel. Um, and they base their uh, conclusions on interviews with jurors and on observing jury deliberations. We couldn't do that today because it's not yeah. allowed, and I don't think in any jurisdiction. Um, so, you know, it, I know there's been speculation um, in the media that the the results of the uh, defamation suit involving Johnny Hep, uh, Johnny Depp, and Amber is Amber Heard. Yes. Uh, that that's going to throw some cold water on the at me too movement, but, mm -hmm. um, and that it really uh, sends a um, uh, sort of a warning message about the views that people have um, regarding domestic violence and sexual assault, because those were claims that she made um, in yeah. her allegations. Yeah. All right. So then what are some possible solutions or efforts that can be made to better handle sexual assault cases, not just in policy, but also for us in the general public? Um, what are some things that could be done? Well, I think we have to start by um, recognizing that sexual assault is a crime that is strongly influenced by myths and stereotypes. Mm -hmm. um, and that most of these myths, if not all of these myths are not true. Um, for example, the real rape myth, that, that is the idea that um, only sexual assaults involving a stranger who jumps out of the bushes and holds a gun to the victim's head or a knife to her throat, mm -hmm. um, those are the only kinds of real rapes that the rest are not uh, legitimate. And in fact, um, when we were doing our interviews, the detectives would talk about legitimate rapes and righteous victims, which was pretty disheartening um, because this was, you know, in the second decade of the 21st century that they were using this kind of terminology. So, I think these are deeply ingrained attitudes that people have, and it affects every aspect of the criminal justice process because we did, uh, uh, one of my doctoral students and I did a study on um, looking at the interview data from Los Angeles, and we found all kinds of evidence that the police were basing their decisions on these myths you know, that they too bought into the notion that there are real rapes, legitimate rapes, and then there are the other kinds of rapes. They bought into the argument that uh, victims somehow bring this on themselves by the way that they behaved or um, how they were dressed, they were dressed provocatively or they behaved in a pr provocative manner. You know, I had one detective say to me, 
you know, there's a lot of self victimization in these cases. And I was surprised and I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, it was a he, he said very cavalierly, well, you know, girls who go into bars drink too much and make bad choices. Um, and those sorts of attitudes are, I think, are deeply ingrained. And I don't know um, how we disabuse, you know, how we counteract those kinds of myths and stereotypes. Um, I think that one possible um, reform, and this would only work in larger jurisdictions, is to have a specialized sex crimes unit both for police and for prosecutors, um, because this results in um, detectives and district attorneys who have substantial experience with these kinds of cases, get um, comprehensive training about how to handle the cases and how to establish rapport with victims, how to effectively interview victims so that they can um, maintain uh, the victim's cooperation through the entire case. So I think sex crimes units um, it might be a solution in larger jurisdictions, although there's some evidence that outcomes are, are not really any different in jurisdictions that have them, but there's very little research that looks at that. Um, training, I think is important. Uh, in Los Angeles, in the police department, um, they have what are called tables. Um, at least they did at the time that we were doing our research. And I think they still do. So detectives would move from the robbery table to the assault table, to the sex table, which is a horrible name, but, um, and they, they might only stay, uh, you know, a month, two months, six months, and they would move on to, to another um, assignment. And all of the detectives, almost all of them told us that they did not receive adequate training in how to handle these kinds of cases, how to interview victims so that they could establish rapport. And um, so I think training is also critical. Um, one of the things we recommended to the LAPD is that they have a week-long training program. And they actually did institute that. And Kate Tellis, my, my colleague, um, taught that first course. So. Um, now, whether they've maintained that or not, I don't know, but uh, um, at least something that we recommended did seem to have an, have an effect. Yeah, yeah. that's great those, to see. Yeah, absolutely. Well, those are all the questions that we had for you today. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Maybe something that maybe we didn't touch on that you'd like to? So one of the things people often ask me is, um, do we have a national database on outcomes in sexual assault cases? And the answer, of course, is no, we don't. And I think that, you know, here we are in the 21st century and we have all kinds of, uh, you know, data mining uh, operations, and yet we can't somehow collect all of this data on a national um, on a national level so that we know what is happening to these cases. We know from the FBI's uniform crime reports how many 
crimes there, there are and how many arrests there are or how many cases are cleared by arrest. Yeah. Um, but we don't know anything beyond that. We don't know how often prosecutors file charges, how often uh, judges or juries um, convict and what the sentences are in these kinds of cases. And we, we desperately need uh, that kind of, of national data. Um, not just about sexual assault, about all kinds of cases. And I know people are working um, to, try to, to try to address that. Measures for Justice, for example, is trying to develop um, jurisdiction-specific data on outcomes and performance measures. Um, but yeah, I think that's, I think that's a, um, something that is desperately needed. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And a culture oh. shift somehow. And a culture <laughs> yeah. shift somehow, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that the blame is not placed on the victim in these kinds of cases. Right. And exactly. I find it, I find it, um, when I give talks like this, I find it shocking that in the 21st century, we're still talking about legitimate rapes and righteous victims. Yeah. You know, we've had... 50 years of reforms and attention that's being played, paid to sexual assault. And there was a, the Senate had a task force on the response of the criminal justice system mm -hmm. to the crime of rape. And yet we still are seeing the same patterns that we saw in the 1960s and the 1970s with yeah. very few cases resulting in arrest and you know minuscule numbers of cases resulting in conviction and punishment. Right. Um, so the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah, <laughs> right. I, I was just about to say that. Yeah, <laughs> you, exactly. you stole my closing line. Oh, oh I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, that's all right. Uh, well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk with us about this very important and absolutely heartbreaking topic. Uh, it's really important that we know about what it is that's actually happening. Um, and like you said, it seems like the more things change, the more they say, they seem to stay the same. Yes. Um, is there anything you'd like to plug? Anything we should be on the lookout for in the near future? Um, you mean for a, another type of podcast? Or like any uh, publications, books, any, anything that you might be doing that oh, uh, on might be coming song. in the future? Yeah. Um, you know, I've kind of moved on to uh, some other kinds of issues, but, um, you know, I still am working with the Department of Defense on sexual assault in the military. And um, that is uh, another very, very problematic area of, uh, in terms of uh, outcomes in, in these kinds of cases. I can only imagine. Um, and then finally, where can people find you? Is, uh, would email be the best way to contact you if anyone has any questions? Absolutely. Cassia.spawn at asu.edu. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Um, this, it was great talking with you. Um, we learned a lot and we thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you today. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. Um, it was my pleasure. And um, something I'm passionate about. So I, I like talking to people about it. 
spread yes. the spread the word. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Great to meet you again. All right. Thank yep. you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, or let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Crim Academy. That's T-H-E-C-R-I-M-A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. Or email us at thecrimacademy at gmail.com. See you next time. See you next time. time.